Murray has to go first because he's older. <laughs> <coughs> oh, Not we're gonna, much, <clears throat> a little bit. Uh, Donna told me to be real short because uh, what we really want to do is uh, to get out of the students and, uh, and, and answer their questions and uh, enliven things up. But the uh, thing that really excites me about space, and I think we need to do more of it, is uh, is to that, that real deep reach, the quest, the kind of stuff uh, that Donna was doing with the Mars program and Sojourner, to where you reach far enough out where uh, space becomes a mirror, where the kinds of things we've been discussing this week and other weeks here in which uh, it is self-discovery. If you go far out enough in space, you, it's, it becomes a mirror to, to what are we as individuals, and, and it's almost a, a mirror for what it is to be a human species. You leap off the Earth, like we did back then in the early 60s, and you see that, that incredible blue jewel floating there in space, and you say, wow, <clears throat> that's our home. So it's a wholly different perspective, and you think about the home, but you look at the Voyager. Voyager, before it is just exiting the solar system now, and uh, we turned it around and looked at Earth, and Earth was only a bright star in that photograph, and it's in that dust plane, from which the solar system came, and it's absolutely a magnificent image. <clears throat> but now you see Earth as a lifeboat in this incredible huge ocean, and we're all in that lifeboat together. And so you start thinking about a lifeboat concept, you start thinking your relationship with Earth, you start thinking of the bigger issues, you lose the sense of, of nationalism, tribalism, and cultural differences, but you look and you see Earth that's the size of a bright star, you say, we're all cosmic creatures along on that journey. When you look at planetary kinds of things, um, it's a mirror for Earth and the way things have evolved here on Earth. When I leap off out into space, in a way I not only represent you, I just represent life. And uh, life is so incredibly powerful, this Arizona landscape, you go out there, and, uh, you know, it's planetary. It's just exciting to look at uh, the Arizona landscape. You feel like you're out there. It's a little warmer than Mars, but uh, <laughs> it's great stuff. But going to the planets, you think about uh, how life was created and evolved and, and came along here, and you do Hubble Space Telescope, and you got star birth and star death and all that kind of things. And you take the Hubble Space Telescope and you aim it in a place in the universe where there is nothing. No ground-based observatory has seen anything, and you, and you leave it. You leave the lens open for 10 days. You can do that. You take a 10-day exposure, if you know what that is. But there's nothing there, right? What do you find? Another 1,000 galaxies. And so basically, we discover you know, 10 trillion more stars. And no matter where you aim a telescope, you find another 10 trillion stars. And so uh, that's what it's all about. But the idea of the other, the idea of life out there, when you're dealing in those kind of numbers, uh, we as a species, if you look at uh, the Copernican kind of revolution where you find out, yes, the Earth is round, it's not flat, and yes, the universe does not circulate around the Earth. And you go through the other major milestones as a species, whether it's Darwin, Freud, Relativity, and Einstein, and that kind of stuff. I think the acceptance of another out there, the intuitive acceptance that we have this trouble with, with uh, linear space and time, but the intuitive acceptance of other living creatures and other intelligent creatures is one of those major steps that we have to do as the growth of a human species. But when you think of, we will never know, we have creation and evolution, we have only one sample of it here, we will never have a mirror and never know ourselves until we come face to face uh, with that other. 
And probably life is a cosmic imperative, but uh, in terms of how it replicates, like DNA, DNA is probably not a cosmic imperative, so there's probably other uh, replication mechanisms out there. But that kind of thing, you see, we look at that, and until we're able to look at that, we will never really know ourselves. And so the kind of self-discovery we have done here as individuals, I think there are parts of spaceflight that allow us to do that as a species. And that is the kind of space research, the kind of space uh, exploration we should be doing. Uh, so space exploration, and by the way, I am not anymore at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I retired a couple of years ago, and uh, it's for you. And you was Sue drinking out of it? <laughs> and uh, I am now Assistant Dean of Engineering at the University of Oklahoma. So if any of you are interested in going to the University of Oklahoma, come and see me. Uh, one of the things he was talking about is the, uh, you know, the imperative of exploration. Uh, on a little closer to home basis, people ask me, you know, why are we spending all this money, you know, on space? Well, I wanted to give you a few numbers. Uh, the rover, remember the little rover? Anybody remember the little rover that crawled around on Mars? Okay. That rover cost $25 million. Now you say, my gosh, $25 million for a little bitty thing size of a microwave oven. But $25 million is the salary of one highly paid basketball player for one year. And that paid the salaries of a, a team of about 30 people for about four or five years. Uh, Pathfinder, the one that landed it, cost $265 million, which was about the same price as the movie Waterworld. <laughs> and we got much better reviews. <laughs> so, so if you put these things in perspective, you can ask yourself, you know, how do we explore, how much are we willing to spend on exploring? And this has to do with the mysteries of the universe or whatever the title of this thing is. Because, you know, you could say, okay, how much do we want to spend on exploring and how much do we want to spend uh, enriching ourselves and buying bigger houses or longer boats or whatever it is? And so you can see, though, for a relatively modest price, you can send your surrogate explorers out there, your virtual explorers, and they have eyes and ears and can, can send back data that you can, you can really see like you're there. Well, why do we care? Well, I, I'd like for some of the geneticists in the crowd to talk about this, but my personal belief, based on you know, no real uh, qualifications, is that there's some sort of explorer gene in us. I mean, if you look at uh, the, you know, the early tribes in Africa, the young males in chimpanzee tribes, for instance, go out and they leave the tribe because otherwise you get a lot of incestuous stuff going on and bad genetics, and they go off and find another, uh, another uh, tribe to, to live with. And so that, that's how we evolved, is people would go off over the horizon and find somebody else to marry. Well, we've now gone everywhere there is on Earth and maybe we don't understand it thoroughly under the sea and so on. And there's lots of scientific things to explore and lots of artistic things to explore. But the fact is that we've run out of frontier. We've run out of places for our surplus population to go. And so now we have to look at husbanding what we've got, which is, has to do with Story's view of looking back at the Earth and understanding it and understanding the context of the Earth and the universe. But we also, I think, need to have this avenue of exploration because we need to do that. It's just wired into us. So if we don't explore space, we're going to kind of fold back in on ourselves. I think that's already happening to a certain extent. And the ex exploration gene is really there. Think of the people who pay $65,000 to get guided to climb Everest. You know, with a high probability that they'll die. 
but they do it anyway. So <coughs> there's really something there. Now, the other thing about exploring space is we can look back and look at ourselves. Because, for instance, three and a, four and a half billion years ago, when the planets got started, there were some rocky planets. And, and uh, Earth, Venus, and Mars were all about the same. And Venus got too hot. You could melt lead on the surface of Venus, runaway greenhouse effect. Mars got too cold, it lost all its water and turned into this permanent ice age, and Earth stayed just right. It's even called the Goldilocks effect. And uh, so, why is that? You know, how much greenhouse gases could we put in the air before we turn into Venus? Or how much uh, other tinkering can we do with the atmosphere we, before we turn into Mars? So we'd like to know things like that. So planetary exploration, space exploration, does act as a mirror, not only of our personalities and our, and our inner selves, but of our possibilities for continuing to exist in the future. So with that, I'll stop and uh, we'll take questions. Hi, um, my name is Jennifer Raby. I'm from Round Rock, Texas, and I was wondering how long you think it will be before we can actually send people to Mars and start <laughs> colonies, or would that be us or our children or grandchildren? Well, you could do it tomorrow if you wanted to. Uh, it's just a question of whether you want to spend the money to do it. I mean, you could take the components of the space station and some stuff that, you know, the designs we used on Viking and Pathfinder, and, and you could do it technically. Uh, but it probably cost somewhere between 100 and 300, 400 billion dollars, and we just have to decide if we want to spend the money that way. I think we need to do it, uh, do it right, do it in an evolutionary way instead of leap off with a huge cost. I think we need to have a pyramid. The very top block is the very top block is going to sending humans to to Mars. We need to identify the way we did on going to the moon, all the other blocks that you need to get there, all the technologies that you need to know. And in everyday business, you identify one and you, you solve one. And as the years go by, eventually you start to get to a point where you could leap off. And so th there you get the answers along the way and you don't have the huge upfront cost. And I would have a human to Mars program now even if it took 50 or 60 or 100 years to do it. My name is Andrew Claiborne. I'm from Chicago, Illinois. You both spoke a lot about exploration, and so often exploration comes off of pipe dreams, theories that people put out that actually turn true. You cited Copernicus. And today in our day, we have people like Stephen Hawking. Um, we have people like Carl Sagan. I was wondering how much validity NASA puts into different theories and pipe dreams, and if you could share maybe your favorite one. That's better. I don't think NASA puts enough attention to pure exploration. I think there's all kinds of other agendas get, that get on the table. I think the real reason, the thing that really turns people on about space is exploration and that mirror, in fact. What you find out there is an inward turn. It says something about the meaning and hope for we as an individual and also we as a species. I think we need to have more emphasis on, on those kinds of things. But exploration is not just going out to the planets. Exploration, of course, is in technology, it's in the arts, and it's everywhere else. In fact, basically, what we in Achievement Academy do, uh, meeting after meeting, and that is walking that edge. It's just pushing that boundary and walking along that edge, whether it's technology or the arts or literature or anything else. And so I think what we really do here, achievement, is exploration. It's pushing the boundaries. But I do think we need more emphasis in, in that kind of spaceflight. Yeah, I think he's absolutely right. NASA itself is just a large bureaucracy. 
uh, a large politically driven bureaucracy. And within it, there are people like Story and me, a lot of us, who want to go to space or who want to have our robots go into space or whatever. So the dreams of the people are what drive it. But the, you know, it's kind of like an organism where the cells are really gung-ho, but the organism itself is sort of sluggish. And so, uh, it, you know, there's, there's, there's all kinds of things you have to take into account. If you're an engineer, for example, and I'm an engineer, not a scientist, if you're an engineer and you don't understand politics uh, and you're trying to do something grand and vast, you're not going to make it work. My personal uh, uh, motivation was I started reading science fiction when I was 11. I was like Sue. I read a lot. And uh, I read Arthur C. Clarke's The Sands of Mars and Ray Bradbury's Martian Chronicles, and I wanted to go. Anybody over here? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, uh, I was wondering... Well, um, how many years do you think it'll be? Space has so much to offer for us in the way of like, how many years do you think it'll be before we start exploiting space by uh, maybe relieving some of the population uh, demands or mining, or mining the moon or asteroids or such and such? Okay, well, I'll start with this one. Uh, we are not going to relieve population by going into space. It's simply way, way, way too expensive. So we have to take care of our population by slowing down our breeding. <laughs> and being more careful on how we husband Earth's resources. So that won't work. We're already making, people are making a lot of money off of space. It's called communication satellites. And uh, the next thing that's going to make money is remote sensing. Uh, there's some possibility that you could make money off of microgravity stuff. And space tourism, people like Buzz Aldrin are promoting space tourism like crazy. So over the next hundred years, we will be making money out of space. And we are making money right now. Just uh, low-cost, reliable access to space should be our number one priority, greater than anything else. Once you've got low-cost, reliable access to space, all those other good things are going to happen. Hi, I'm Lindsay from Miami, Florida, and my question is really directed at Mr. Musgrave. I was wondering how you overcame the fear of actually going into space and doing something that was so, so dangerous. Uh, Lindsay, I, don't, I never did overcome that fear. It scares the hell out of me. I really... I'm not a risk taker, and I don't like all that shake, rattle, and roll and all the business that goes on. But in an abstract kind of way, I says, that's what I do in life. I'm buying into this. I don't like the risk, but I go forward. So in a way, I abstract the fears. It's only during launch. As spacewalking and that kind of stuff, it's so serene. It's so gentle. It's so quiet. There are none of those you know, signs of impending disaster. But at launch, there's all of those kinds of signs. But my own... Uh, sense is I've been doing that for 48 years, flying and that, that kind of stuff. I abstract and say, this is what I do in life. You made the decision earlier. Now go ahead and, and go forward and do it, as scared as you are. Hi, uh, my name is Ryan Richardson. I'm from Arlington Heights, Illinois. And recently, uh, there's been the attempts to explore Mars, you know, that tried to do it cheaper and less expensive and have failed. And uh, what do you think about those, and what do you think that says about like, the future of okay, exploration? Okay, um, question is about better, faster, cheaper. Uh, my answer to that is pick two. Uh, <clears throat> actually, uh, we are doing things better, faster, and cheaper, but there are limits to how fast you can do, how much you can do. Uh, Pathfinder, for example, remember I said it was $265 million, one movie. Uh, well, Mars Surveyor 98 was two for the price of one. So uh, the government said, well, uh, we've got $265 million, so we want you to do an orbiter and a lander. So the engineers said, yeah, we're good. We can do that. And then they said, by the way, 
we want you to launch on a half-size launch vehicle because we want you guys to be the anchor tenant of this new launch vehicle. So you only have half the weight, half the mass uh, to do it with. So if you have a problem like on Pathfinder, the airbags that landed and it bounced around, those got four times as heavy as we thought they were going to be. But we couldn't solve problems like that on the Mars 98 ones. So now you got half the mass, you got half the money. And by the way, we want you to do more science. And we want you to do it in a lot less time. And so uh, we want you to do all this stuff. And you have to do it, or we'll give the contract to somebody else, and you'll go out of business. With that kind of pressure, you have too few people. They're too underpaid. They're too undertrained. You don't have anybody to check. You make mistakes, and you fail. And we're out of time, but just to, to finish up on that, if you look at the details of, of why those satellites did not work, it was not just the money. It's the beauties and the details. It is an absolute passion for details. It's perfection. It's living in perfection in the moment. It is having a mission, as we said earlier. You have a mission, not just a job. Space becomes your calling. What you do in life becomes your calling. And so everything you do is to pursue the details to make those kind of things right. And I think we're out of time. Okay. Sure. Thanks. Thanks.